This week, here at Calvary, we start a new series we're calling We Believe. We're going to walk through some of the chief beliefs that we hold here at at Calvary. We'll talk about baptism, the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about the Apostles' Creed. And next week, we'll be hitting sanctification. But this week, we'll be starting our series looking at justification. What is... What is justification? I mean, it's a big word that we don't, like we sometimes hear, we don't always hear. What is it? Like, what are we talking about? Well, when you reach a a certain age in our church, you go through confirmation, uh, a time of looking at our doctrine, a time of looking at what we believe. And and during confirmation, we work our way through the little red book. I, I should have brought it out here. I was intending to do that, so I'll just pretend I'm holding it up. We work through the little red book, which we title An Explanation of Luther's Small Catechism, and it lays out what we believe, and why. And if we were to turn to page 79 in that book, we'd find this definition of justification. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he, for Christ's sake, acquits me, declares me not guilty. A repentant and believing sinner of my sin and guilt credits me with Christ's righteousness and looks upon me as though I had never sinned. So justification sounds pretty awesome. Being justified sounds pretty great. So how? How are we justified? How does this happen for us? And to answer that question, we're going to look to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. I I know the adult Sunday school class has been working its way through Romans on Sunday mornings. Uh, Erling gave a great plug for that a few weeks ago, and I would encourage all of you adults to take advantage of that opportunity on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., I'm hearing great things. I don't don't get to go because I'm teaching confirmation at that time, but uh, I'm hearing great things. I encourage you to go to that. And we'll probably be hitting Romans a few times as we work our way through this series as Romans is loaded with doctrine. But today we start in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open uh, those up. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you prefer, there will also be the words on the screen. And I invite you to follow along as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. As has probably become pretty clear over the past years that you've been subjected to my preaching, I love a good story. If it's got magic, knights, rogues, elves, dwarves, swords, maybe a dragon, all the better. A few weeks ago, we referenced a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. And today, we'll be looking a little deeper into a story written by a good friend of Tolkien, one of his contemporaries, a brilliant man by the name of C.S. Lewis. Some of you may be familiar with Lewis's book series for children, The Chronicles of Narnia. In the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we meet four children who, while staying with their recluse of an uncle, discover a portal in the back 
of a wardrobe. Now, how fantastic would that be? Like, there's just this big old wardrobe. We're going to play hide-and-seek. And now I'm in a new world, and it's, and it's awesome. This portal leads to a land where magic is real. Fairy tale creatures like fawns and centaurs exist, and animals talk. But the land has been ruled by an evil witch, and through her terrible power, she has made it so that it is always winter in the land of Narnia. Always winter, but never Christmas. One of the children, Edmund, finds himself in Narnia alone, and he meets the witch. She spoils him. She, she gives him treats, and he feels supported by her. His brothers and sisters have been mean to him, largely because he's been a total jerk, particularly to the youngest sister, Lucy. But he doesn't see it that way, and, and so to be embraced by the witch, to be spoiled with candy and drink by this woman in white, he's convinced that she must not be as bad as everyone makes her out to be. She's just misunderstood, like he is. And so he is sympathetic to the witch, and when the time comes that he and his siblings journey to Narnia together, he leaves them to go and find her, for he feels more comfortable with her than he does his family. And he wants more of the tasty treats that she had given him on their first visit. The first time I heard the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, I was a child. And my mother was reading it to me and my siblings before we went to bed. And, and each night she would read a chapter. And if we begged her hard enough, or, and I suspect this might have been like the bigger thing, if, if the first chapter, like if there was enough time to get through the second chapter before Law and Order started, that, would, that was probably like the, the bigger thing. But, you know, we would beg her. And sometimes we would get two chapters. The first time I read this book, man, I loathed Edmund. He could be so mean and, and not understand. How, how could he be so mean and not understand it? How could he do the things that he does and not grasp how he is one, he's the one with the problem? He's, he's the instigator, right? He's the one that is pushing his siblings away. And then when he meets the witch and he hangs out with her and he eats the Turkish delight that she offers him, how can he not see how evil she is? All the signs are, are right there, the way that she treats her little dwarf helper, the way that she treats the horses that are pulling the sleigh. And he's blind to it all, blinded because he is so caught up in getting what he wants. So distracted by how the beautiful woman in white has made him feel good about the things that others have made him feel bad for. And as much as that whole thing makes me loathe, Edmund, as I've gotten older, as I have lived more life, as I have found myself tempted by the candy and the treats of the beautiful woman in white, I have come to realize to my guilt and my shame that I am Edmund. Who of us is innocent? Who of us has never taken what we wanted at the expense of what would have been better for someone else? Who of us has never made excuses for the things that we've done, the things that we know we, we shouldn't have, but man, we just, we just wanted so badly. And it was right there. So that the voice in our head screams that we shouldn't. We did. I don't know what that thing has been for you. I don't know what that thing continues to be for you. For sin does not leave us alone, does it? It, it doesn't let us be. It, it pushes and it pressures all the time. We're constantly under the barrage, the continual attack of temptation, an attack that we don't always dislike, right? 
Temptation is not always unwelcome in our hearts, is it? And like Edmund, we fall more often than we'd like to admit. And like Edmund, we make excuses for why it's okay for us to side with the white witch. Why it's okay for us to partake of the treats, to betray our brothers and sisters, and to run to the one who makes us feel better about how bad we are. And like Edmund, that leaves us in a place of hurting and fear. For when Edmund left his siblings and ran to the witch, he found that she didn't really care about him. She just cared about defeating her ancient foe, the lion, Aslan. And Edmund had been a part of her attack on him. This time, when Edmund ran to the witch, he found himself in chains. The great confrontation between good and evil, between the lion and the witch, is to be held at the stone table. And the woman in white puts Edmund in chains and then brings him with her as she makes her way that direction while ordering the death of his brothers and sisters. But with the return of Aslan, her power over the land is lessening. The snow is melting. Dirt and rocks and roots of trees are being exposed by the retreating snow. And her sleigh won't run on the muddy ground. And so she is slowed down as she has to ditch the sleigh to walk on foot. While they are on foot, the witch, witch, her dwarf, and Edmund come under attack by Aslan's people. The witch and the dwarf hide while Edmund is rescued and brought into Aslan's camp. The next morning, the older brother, Peter, leaves his tent and sees his younger brother safe and sound, having a conversation with the lion. Lewis never tells us what words are shared between Edmund and Aslan on that brisk, sunny morning. What the author does tell us is that after that morning, Edmund, the betrayer, the tempted, the failure, the horrible brother, the loathsome character in the story, the one that you don't want to cheer for, Edmund is brought into Aslan's camp to stay. And that's an encouraging picture for us as well, right? Edmund has tangibly witnessed how bad the other side is. He's come face to face with his poor choices, with his rebellion, with his bad attitude. He's seen the consequences of giving in to temptation, how it's good for a little while, but when unmasked, temptation is revealed as mistreatment. And he was rescued from giving in to that. And when he comes face to face with the lion, with the lion who has the power to save, his haughty air dissipates. His pretentiousness is gone. He is humbled and he is repentant and he is welcomed in to the family. And church, that's true for us as well. Remember, we are Edmund and so it is incredibly important for us to know, to hold on to the truth that though we have fallen, though we have given in to temptation, there is room for repentance, there is room for forgiveness and there is restoration in the family of God. That's a promise that we can hold on to. We, we need to cling to. It's a promise made to us for our benefit and because of our need. But the story, it doesn't end there. You see, Edmund was a betrayer. And the white witch comes under the flag of Parley to Aslan's camp and when, that she might claim Edmund as her own. She reminds Aslan of the deep magics that that had been instituted by the emperor across the sea at the beginning of time. And she reminded Aslan that these deep magics give her the right to kill anyone guilty of treachery. Edmund is a traitor. By rights, he belongs to her, that he might die at her hand. 
Aslan meets with the woman in white. We aren't told what is said, but when their meeting ends, the white witch gives up her claim on Edmund. And she looks ecstatic, while Aslan looks sad and gloomy. That night, the sisters, Susan and Lucy, they can't sleep. They wake in the night and find Aslan leaving camp. He allows them to accompany him for a while and is encouraged that he is not alone as he journeys to the stone table. Once they arrive, he bids the sisters leave, but instead they hide in some bushes nearby. And then come the minions of the witch, creatures from nightmare, monsters and minions of evil, and Aslan does nothing but sit there and let them surround him. The witch arrives and and commands that Aslan be tied up, and he does not fight as they bind him with ropes to the stone table. And out come the shears, and Aslan is humiliated as his great lion's mane is shaved from his head. At first, the minions of the witch are hesitant in their heckling of the lion, but as he continues to lay there, as he continues to offer up no resistance to their torment, they grow bolder and bolder in their words and their actions. Aslan is humiliated. The strong, powerful lion who could have easily defeated all of these monsters around him allowed himself to be tied and tormented, allowed himself to be humiliated and bound. And then the witch approaches him with a knife. She tells the crowd how Edmund, the traitor, was hers by rights, but that Aslan had offered himself up in Edmund's place, that this trade, this swap, this sacrifice would appease the deep magics. Susan and Lucy, hiding in the bushes, cover their faces as the witch plunges her blade into the heart of the lion they love. Restitution had to be made. Punishment had to be doled out. The deep magics had to be satisfied. The deep magics of Narnia, established by the emperor across the sea, didn't leave room for Edmund to work his way back into their good graces. He had crossed the line. He had been treacherous, and the penalty for treachery is death. And as it was for Edmund, so it is for us. God's righteousness demands perfection. Our works, we're never going to cut it. We can never be good enough to work our way into perfection. That's not how perfection works. Perfect, perfection means without blemish. It means totally free from any flaws, any failings, any defects. Once something is flawed, it can't work its way to perfection. It's already flawed. That time has come and it is gone. So what does that mean for our relationship with God? He, he loves us. He, he cares about us. But if, if we couldn't be perfect, if we couldn't then maintain perfection, we could not have relationship with him. His righteousness wouldn't allow it. He's God. He cannot betray himself. He can't be in relationship with sin. I know I've used the illustration before, but I, that just fits so well here. We've all seen fog, right? We've all seen mist. We, we know what that is. Well, if you were to be in Olympia, Washington, and you were to drive towards Seattle at a certain time in the morning, there will sometimes, quite often, be a, a heavy mist, a, a deep fog in the, in the Nisqually Valley. And if you drive through that valley at the right time of the morning, just as the sun is clearing the trees that rim the valley, you watch the fog, the mist, just dissipate. 
You watch it just clear up right in front of you. The mist can't exist in the presence of the sun. The sun's very being, it it doesn't leave room for the mist, for the fog to be present. They, They can't coexist. In the same way, God cannot have relationship with us in our sinfulness, the relationship that he wants to have, the relationship that he designed us for, that he created us to have with him. That relationship cannot exist because of our sinfulness and his righteousness. So what does God do? God desires to have a relationship with us. That's why he created us. So so what is he to do? Church, if we are Edmund, and we are, then Aslan is Jesus Christ. The one who left heaven to be with us, who left utopia to come and live in this broken world that we might have fellowship, relationship, or that he might have fellowship and relationship with its broken people. He came and lived with us, and he suffered alongside us. And when the time came, he was betrayed, and he was convicted in a sham of a trial by a rigged jury. And up the hill to Calvary, he carried the instrument of his death. And with that cross, he also carried the sins of the world. And as the nails went through his hands and through his feet, and as he was raised before men, naked and abused, there on the cross, Christ became sin for us. He took our sin. He became it. Just as Aslan allowed himself to be humiliated and accepted the death that Edmund had earned, just as these acts satisfied the requirements of the deep magics of Narnia, so Christ submitting to the will of the Father and allowing himself to be nailed to a tree where he suffered and died in our place satisfied the wrath of our righteous God. The wrath of God towards sin was not poured out over us, but Christ. He was the mist burned up by the power of the sun. He took all that we have ever done and ever will do and paid the cross. And as he hung there, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then just before he gave up his spirit, he said these three beautiful, fantastic words. It is finished. It is finished. Christ died one time for all time, that all sin would be paid for. There is nothing you have done or will do that Christ did not already die for. The penalty for your sin has been paid. But the story does not end there. Susan and Lucy didn't sleep well in the bushes that night. They cried and held each other in the darkness. At one point, they noticed that there were mice all over their beloved Aslan. At first... They went to scare them away and then realized that the mice were actually eating away at the ropes that bound the lion. As dawn broke and not being able to sleep, they began to wander somewhat aimlessly around the area. But as the sun crested the hills and the first rays of that sunlight hit their faces, a loud crack split the morning. They rushed to the stone table. Aslan is nowhere to be seen, but the table itself is broken in two. And then there's the lion, walking up to them, Aslan, back from the dead. Christ died on that cross, and he was put in a tomb, but three days later the stone had been rolled away, and Christ had risen from the grave. And in his rising, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, defeated sin and death. He had paid the price for our sin. He had accepted God's wrath in our place. He died, and he rose again. 
And the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, when we accept his death for us, when we recognize and praise him as our Lord and Savior, then the dirty rags of our sin are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when we believe, when we rest in the faith that Jesus has given us, when we are trusting in him, when God sees us, he doesn't see the dirty, rotten sinners that we are. He sees his son. We cannot be perfect. So God, through faith, gave us the perfection of Christ. We cannot be righteous. So God, through faith, gave us Christ's righteousness, that through faith we would become children of God, that through faith we have been justified, made right with the Father. For as Paul tells us in our text this morning, we are justified by faith. If we don't have faith, we're not justified. If we don't have faith, things aren't good between us and God. Not yet anyway, not until we answer the call that God has put on our lives and step into the life of faith that he desires for each of us. Christ died for all sin, for all time. Your sin is paid for. But you do not live in the benefits of that unless you believe, unless you have faith unless you have been justified. Church, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has declared you not guilty. And he has credited you with Christ's righteousness. And he looks upon you as though you had never sinned. What a gift we have in Jesus. How thankful I am for justification. On my own, I had no hope. But because of the gracious act of love that was performed by my Savior on the cross, I have hope for life eternal in heaven with my God. And as Paul writes, it is a hope that does not exist as the world sees hope as a flimsy desire. The hope we have in Christ is carved in granite. It is a patient expectation. And one day, all who believe will live in the realization of that expectation. What a fantastic, gracious, wonderful, and amazing God we serve. Amen.